hear the Bibles already as we come now uh, to the Word of God. Would you turn with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 2? This morning we're in Exodus chapter 2. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, uh, we join with the writer of the psalm as we pray. Lord, open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things of your law. We are sojourners on the earth, and so do not hide your commands from us. Lord, help us to live and to keep your word. As we come before you here, Lord, would you guide us by your spirit, open our, heart, our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Uh, I'll begin here in verse 11. I want to read almost to the end of the chapter. We'll save the very uh, last few verses there for next week. But this is Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of God. Now, this section of Exodus begins with the words, One day when Moses had grown up. Which means that we've got a little bit of a time jump uh, between this text and the text just before, the section we read last week. We don't know exactly how much time has passed here, although the New Testament, just in passing, mentions that Moses was 40 years here, so that's probably a good guess. We know very little about Moses during this season of his life. 
A little later in the book of Exodus, in chapter 7, we learn that the time when Moses confronts Pharaoh, you know, all the, all the famous sections of, of all the plagues and the, the let my people goes, that happens when Moses is 80 years old. So the events that we're about to come upon in chapter 3 at the burning bush and all of that, he's very close to 80 years there. Which means that the text that we've just read now is, is wedged between a section of Moses as a baby and a little boy running around and Moses at 80 years old. So this is the only account from, I guess, what we could call his young adult years. And the fact that this is the only account of that season of his life does not mean, does not mean that it's just filler or just a transition. Uh, there's a term for this uh, in, in TV and radio, uh, a bumper, at least we used to call it that. Um, I think they're still called bumpers, and, and you know what they are even if you don't necessarily recognize them. So when, if you're listening to the radio and there's a commercial and then there's a little jingle right before it brings you back into the radio program, or if you watched the Super Bowl last week and they've got the, the ads, uh, but then there's you know the logo, the, the NFL logo comes on the screen for just a moment before the game starts back up, or, or you know there's the wide, if you're watching a TV show, there's sort of the wide angle shot of a city or maybe just a big house. That's called a bumper. It's to help us transition usually between a commercial or something else and the rest, uh, the rest of the program to, to know and to be able to follow what's going on. So this is not just a bumper scene in Exodus. It's not just trying to get us from one place to another. So this is not just the account of how Moses got from Egypt to Midian. It's not just the account of how he went from being single to having a family. It's not just how he got from baby to burning bush. The author here, so Moses and the Holy Spirit, the author has a particular purpose in telling us this account. So the question, of course, is why? Of all of the events that Moses could give us about, these, about the years of his life, why would he give us this scene? At the end of this section, he gives us his interpretation on this season, at least a summary of it, and it's given to us in the name of his son, Gershom. So if you remember last week in the previous set of verses, we saw the reason he gave us for accounting all the birth narrative. At the very end, we're told that his name is Moses, and then the meaning of that name is to be drawn out. That Moses was saved by God, just as Noah was drawn out and saved by God. That's all woven into just his name. Now we see a similar sort of purpose of highlighting what's going on in a child's name. Now, for clarity, this does not mean that the meaning of every name in Scripture is important. Some people go a little bit too far with this and try to figure out what all the meanings are. So, for example, we're told Moses' wife's name is Zipporah. It's a pretty name. I don't know any Zipporahs now, but it's a, it's a nice name. The name means bird, or one translator said twitterer, which sounds different to my ear, but 
Zipporah means bird, but the author makes no particular point of mentioning her name's meaning. Also, Moses has a second son named Eliezer, which means God is my help. And later he tells us in this book that he names his son that because God had saved him, Moses, from the sword of Pharaoh. That would seem like a fitting thing to mention here. And then I sat down, I was in Midian, and I had a son named God as my help. But he does not even mention that son here. Here he mentions his son Gershom. It's in verse 22. Let me read it. She, which is Moses' wife, she gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. For, here's now the reason, for, he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom means sojourner or stranger or foreigner. And it seems as if that's what characterizes these middle years of Moses' life. He says, I have been a sojourner. Not Gershom, the son, has been a sojourner, but I, Moses, have been a sojourner in the land. So then what are we to make of something like this? There is a sense in which we, especially as Christians, are sojourners too. We hear it a number of places in Scripture. Let me just mention a few because these are helpful to us. David mentions this in some of the last words of his life in a recorded prayer at the end of 1 Chronicles, if I can find it here. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's a much longer prayer, but let me just read in verse 14. David says this, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? All things come from you and of your own we have given you. Here's here's what I want. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. The author of Hebrews gives us a similar thing, slightly different, but similar, um, as he talks about a few men and women of faith in particular in Hebrews chapter 11. It's in the middle here, 11 verse uh, 13. The author says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. To be seeking a homeland, to be strangers on the earth, that's what's being discussed, at least in these verses. So it is right, at least in a way, to see our lives on earth as a sojourn, as a traveling, as a journey, as a a travel in a foreign land. We were not made for this fallen world that we have created with our own sin. God made us for his 
good creation. God made us for his good Garden of Eden, for his new heavens and new earth, for his kingdom of God, which is what Jesus is renewing and ushering in as the first fruits of these of new life. So life as we know it is not that, at least not yet. This world that we live in now is a foreign land. This should not make us shrug and go, okay, <laughs> so what of it? What do we do about that? Oh, well, I guess we just wait it out until we die. This reality of being a sojourner in a foreign land is meant to make us hope, to give us hope now that there is something better the sense or desire that there is something better, that is a good sense. That is a sense that's really, truly based in reality, a feeling that there must be something better. Now, what we do with that feeling is sometimes not better. We know we often try to fill that desire with other things, like Amazon purchases or sex fame, maybe food, but there is a good and right desire for better things. C.S. Lewis talked about this in a, a long essay called Hope, which is in his book, Mere Christianity. I'll just read a sentence. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's right. This is true for you. Especially as a Christian, you are now a sojourner, but you have a heavenly homeland. This is true according to the word of God, so it is worth mentioning. I hope that helps you, that it gives you hope and encouragement, that it causes you to take heart in the midst of your struggle. And yet, having said all of that, I don't think that's what this text in Exodus is actually about. So the text is not saying Moses was a sojourner you are too. You know, often when we come to the scripture, so much of it seems very foreign to us, different culture, different people, different times, and so we find ourselves struggling to identify with the people in the Bible, but the point is often the opposite of that. We are meant to not identify with Moses here. Moses is a particular kind of sojourner that many of us will never relate to. He is a prince of Egypt, after all. I'm not likely to be in those shoes, ever. Moses here is what we might call today a third culture kid. You heard that term before? A third culture kid. It refers to a child whose upbringing was totally different than the upbringing of their parents, usually because of a change of country. 
So we see a similar kind of thing here with Moses. Moses was born and weaned under the house of Levi in Goshen. And then he's raised under the house of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then as an adult, he's raising his own family under the house of Ruel in Midian. So Moses is part Israelite, part Egyptian, and part Midianite. So when he says here at the end, verse 22, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, he doesn't tell us which land he means. Does he, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, does he mean that now that he's in Midian, he feels like a, a, a sojourner, a foreigner there? Or does he mean that, oh, now this is home, but Egypt, Egypt, where I used to be, that was the foreign land? Most likely, I think what he means by this is, this is characteristic of my life, that I am a sojourner in a foreign land, that I am an ongoing foreigner with no home to call my own. There are some people that may understand this more than others, may understand at least what that feels like. For example, those who may have grown up in foster care may know what it's like to be an ongoing foreigner. Those who are in foreign missions may know what it feels like to be an ongoing foreigner. Those who were raised in military homes where you move and move and move and move. Or those whose parents are noticeably so of two different races may feel in some sense like a foreigner. Those, if, you, if that's you, if you get that, you know that that position is a very challenging one. That in a sense you fit into two worlds but in another sense, it feels like you don't really fit in either world at all. This is the kind of position that Moses now finds himself in. We see those multiple worlds colliding, especially in the incident at the beginning of this text when Moses kills the Egyptian who's beating the Hebrew. It's a complex uh, scene here. There's a lot of debate about whether it was right or wrong for Moses to do this, whether it was right or wrong for Moses to take these matters into his own hands to the point of even taking another person's life. We don't have the time or ability now to get into all the details of this, although I, meant, I will mention that I think Moses was wrong to do this. This seems to me more like a, a act of personal retaliation more than an act of justice. It reminds me in some sense of the song Goodbye Earl. If you remember that old song, there's some problematic parts of that. Mo we know Moses at least felt a little bit conflicted about this. We, we see, where is it, in verse 12 that before he does it, he looks this way and that something about him is bothered by it. He does this before he even acts. And then after he does the deed, he tries to cover it up and hide the Egyptian that he's just killed. Whether Moses is right or wrong to do this, we won't be able to resolve this here. If that, if that bothers you, you can talk to me later about this. What we can tell here, let me bring it back in, what we can tell is Moses does this because he sees himself 
as one of the Hebrews. He sees himself as of Hebrew heritage. In the very first verse of this, verse 11, we we hear this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Not he went out to the Hebrews. He went out to his people, his own people. Literally, the translation there is, he went out to his brothers. And you know, if you've got siblings... Even if you don't get along with your brother, even if you fight every day with your own sibling, if somebody else starts to pick on them, ooh, it's on. Because now I can pick on them because they're family, but you can't pick on them. He sees the Hebrews as his family. The problem is that feeling is not mutual. The Hebrews here don't seem to see Moses as a true Hebrew. So we see in the incident the next day, he's trying to, Moses is now trying to break up a fight between two Hebrew men, and their response to him is to scoff at Moses. Who put you in charge? Who made you the prince and the judge? What, what, are you going to kill us too? And, And, you know, you have to wonder what the rest of that conversation looks like. I mean, did Moses try to defend himself? No, I was just trying to help. You know, I saw this guy beating a Hebrew, and it just didn't seem right. I was just trying to fix it. I was just trying to save you from some of your burdens. You can imagine them go, trying to help us? You, with all your fancy kings and pharaoh gadgets, you're trying to help us? You don't get us at all. You know when that Egyptian that you killed, when he turns up missing, guess who's going to get blamed for it? Us, us Hebrew slaves, you are not one of us. Move on. Problem is, then, that Moses has really nowhere to go. Because the Egyptians don't seem to see Moses as true Egyptian either. When word eventually gets back to the Pharaoh that Moses had killed an Egyptian man, it seems as if Pharaoh is already kind of skeptical about Moses' allegiance. He knows in some way, perhaps, that Moses is Hebrew by heritage, so he wonders, you know, are you with us as Egyptians, or are you with them as the Hebrews? And so Pharaoh very quickly, that's enough. It's, it's, it, that's enough of a reason now to try to get rid of you, and Pharaoh tries to kill him. But then... When Moses flees and arrives in Midian, they know that he's not a true Midianite either. The report of the daughters when they go back home to their dad is that an Egyptian delivered us. There's something about the way Moses was dressed or acted or spoke, whatever it was, marked him as an Egyptian, marked him as a foreigner. And he's received into the house in some sense, at least at first as a visitor. And Moses, by the end, says he's content to dwell with the man. It seems that Moses has no intention of ever going back to Egypt. So this is now home. But it's not quite home. Because when he finally settles in with his wife and his child, you can almost hear the sigh of his heart when he names his son foreigner there.
stranger there. Moses, the sojourner Moses, is the man that God has chosen to save his people out of the land of slavery. So now, the final question here for us is, what is God doing in all of this? What exactly does God mean to do by leading Moses through these things? The short answer to that question is, well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly. Uh, in some, we never know exactly what God is doing. He's an infinite God, so of course he will have infinitely complex reasons for everything that he does. He sometimes gives us a small slice of that, but here we don't even have any reason given at all. We do know that even though God is not mentioned here, God is far from absent He is far from disengaged. In fact, in the very next verses, which we will take up next week, uh, we see that God is present. He's listening. He hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. And then he acts. So even though we don't know exactly what God is doing in the life of Moses, I think it's right to say this, and this will be my summary here. God is shaping his deliverer, Moses, to look more like his son, Jesus. God is shaping his deliverer, Moses, to look more like his son, Jesus. What do I mean by that? Moses, at least in relation to his own Hebrew people, is one of you, and yet not one of you. He's one of you, yet not one of you. Both of those things are true. And that was true for a lot of people in Israel. In this sense, Moses is similar to all of Israel's elders, all of their kings, their prophets, their judges, their priests. By the very nature of their calling, they are one of you, yet not one of you. And we know culturally some people push against this idea. We want our leaders, at least our spiritual leaders, our pastors, to feel really like one of us. But, but, you know, there's this push of trying to identify, trying to connect more. We're losing in some ways that not one of you peace. But even if we resist that idea, we want and even need our leaders to be both one of you and yet not one of you. We know this, yes, because what do we think of a boss who tries too hard to just be one of the guys? Who's getting rid of, trying to get rid of that not one of you element? And then what do we think of the opposite end? What do we think of the one who's not one of you but isn't one of you, the CEO who is so removed that he has no idea what it's really like here in the day-to-day We are bothered by both of those. We want our leaders to be one of us, yet not one of us. And that's especially true if we need our leader to deliver us, to rescue us. That this person would be one of us, would get us, 
identify with us, have a, have a vested interest in us, would, would have even compassion or care or love for us as one of us, and yet also be not one of us, somehow different, somehow set apart, somehow stronger, smarter, holier, able to do the things that we cannot seem to be able to do. When Jesus walked the earth, that is how people saw him. That in some sense, he felt very normal. He's just one of us. You know, isn't that the carpenter's son? You know, isn't that, isn't that Mary's uh, son, his brothers, Joseph and James? Isn't that the guy that, you know, grew up down the street? Uh, we also hear things like he was tempted in every way, just as we are. He's one of us, and yet not one of us. That the people were astonished at the wisdom of his teaching. Astonished at the might of his works that saw as the wind and the waves obey him, that even though he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. The people, as they encountered Jesus, rightly sensed that Christ was of two worlds. And it was even more than they realized because Jesus is more than just a third culture kid. It's more than just he has two separate cultures together in one. He has two natures together in one in a way that no one else has. Jesus is God and man together. Not in conflict, not torn, not mixed. Uh, if that's confusing, we have a nice tidy sentence about it in the uh, affirmation of faith that we affirmed together earlier from the essentials. The sentence, where is it? He, this is Jesus, he who is true God became true man, united in one person forever. That Jesus, as God and man, Christ is in one sense one of us. He has real blood, sweat, and tears. He has a real human flesh, human bones, human heart, human mind, human soul. He still has, is, all of those things, by the way. And Jesus is not one of us. He is not of the earth, but of heaven. He is true God who was and is and is to come. That means that Jesus is a sojourner on a whole different level. That Jesus is able to save on a whole different level. So what Moses is trying to do here in his flawed and sometimes sinful way, Jesus now does in a bigger perfect way. So we see here Moses looks on the people's burdens. Moses puts an end to some of their beatings. Moses steps between the fighting amongst themselves. Moses is their prince and their judge. Moses drives away their enemies and then waters the flock and the people. 
And one day Moses will come back as a sojourner who has become their deliverer. All of that we see bigger and better in Jesus. Jesus looks on your burdens. Jesus puts an end to your beatings. Jesus steps between the fighting amongst ourselves. Jesus is our prince and our judge. Jesus drives away our enemies. Jesus waters the flock and the people. And one day Jesus will return as a sojourner who has become the great deliverer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being and for doing all of this for us. Lord, we know that you prayed for us in some of your final hours before you were killed, that the Father would not take us out of the world, but that the Father would deliver us from evil, that we are not of the world just as you are not of the world. That's true of us. Lord, help us to follow you, to hope in you, and to trust you as our great deliverer. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.